Well, good morning again. So that, that was entirely uh, my fault there. I had focus on what I was doing and forgot about other things that needed to go on as well. So uh, that's on me. But uh, Uptons, thank you very much. Appreciated that. If you would open your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Oh, yes. Is there anything else I'm going to forget? Children may be dismissed for children's church. And as I recall, the book of Mark is in the New Testament. So I'm just trying to rehearse things I'm memorizing, right? So children may be dismissed for children's church. And uh, we are going to uh, be reading from Mark chapter 1. Verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We recognize that we are able to worship you because of what we read in this passage. We recognize that apart from the work of Christ, we would be separated at a distance from you, barred from your presence. We would be 
those who deserve and receive your wrath were it not for what Christ has done. But as it is, you did promise long ago. And you did send your Son. And He did obey you. He did stand in our place and withstand temptation where we have not. Walk obediently before you where we have not. And ultimately died in our place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to bear that penalty for our own sin. We get to come into your presence and worship you as your own children because of what we read in this passage. And so this morning, as we have your word open before us, and as we consider these words in the beginning of this gospel, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts by your spirit, that Christ would be lifted up, that we would see him and what he has accomplished and our own need for those things, our own need for him, that we would grow in our desire for him, that we would love Christ more as a result of our time today. So speak to us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are working our way through the Gospels. We're uh, focusing one Sunday each month for the month of uh, December, at least leading up to Christmas, looking at the beginnings of each Gospel so that we can uh, see what it has to say about Christ our Savior. And last week made sense in that we uh, turn to Matthew, and Matthew uh, starts really with uh, that genealogy and goes into various aspects of the birth of Christ. And of course, next week Luke will do the same as it uh, has uh, nativity uh, stuff as well and talks about uh, all that, that went on uh, regarding and surrounding the birth of Christ and prophecies made and prophecies fulfilled. And so we have the advent, we have the nativity in both Matthew and in Luke, and here we are in Mark. And Mark jumps in a very different place. When you read from the Bible to your family, when you read from the Bible in preparation for the Advent season each year, you probably don't spend a lot of time in Mark. You just skip right past it to go on to Luke. But as we look at our passage today, we can see that there is a lot here that helps us understand why it is that the baby was born, why it is that the Father would send His Son for us. And so we're going to look at these uh, passages, uh, these uh, few paragraphs and few verses today in the beginning of Mark to wrap our minds around that. And really, to understand where Mark is heading and what Mark is building on, we need to remember where the Old Testament left off, because there is a lingering expectation when you open the pages of the New Testament. There's a, there's a sense of anticipation in the air, and that anticipation comes, of course, because of the way the Old Testament closed. In so many ways, the Old Testament is like, is like the, a, a good portion of the story, but not the conclusion. You've got promises made that are going to happen. You've got, you've got a story being told that lasts thousands of years, but, but never lands. It never comes to the conclusion. For that, we must turn to the New Testament. When you look at how the Old Testament concludes, and, and uh, we look at Malachi, 
and how Malachi concludes, you remember that there's a sense of anticipation. If you want to turn back just a few uh, chapters even, just beyond Matthew to the very conclusion of the Old Testament, we have Malachi, and Malachi concludes with verses 5 and 6, and this is the last word of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then the book closes. And then the Testament closes. It closes on a note of anticipation that there's going to be one who will come. There's, there's more to this story. There's, there's more that we must deal with if we are going to understand the working of God in this world. And so, even before we begin Mark, or really uh, any of the Gospels, we must wrestle with the fact of where the Old Testament closes and the, the anticipation of that day of the Lord that's coming and particularly one who's going to be sent in advance to prepare. And so in light of all that, in light of that lingering expectation, now we turn to Mark chapter 1 and we see the first a couple of verses there, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just laying out in a, in a straight statement what this is about, this gospel, this is the beginning of it. He's, he's talking about why it's necessary and what it means, and that gospel is about Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. So rather than building for a good long time until you finally come to the conclusion at the end of this gospel that Jesus is the Son of God. He starts right off the bat by telling you that is His message, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And we see before He comes, though, Israel has to be prepared for Jesus. He must be, Israel must be prepared for Jesus. And so we see in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark starts off where the Old Testament ended by pointing to the one who's going to prepare the way of the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way of the one who would come. And so he quotes here from a couple of different places in the Old Testament. You'll notice that Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but then as you go to search out where actually some of this next couple of verses uh, can be found in the Old Testament, you'll see that actually you'll see it in Malachi, and you'll see actually references to the Exodus before we ever get to Isaiah. And of course, some skeptics will look at that and they will say, well, see, Mark didn't even know what he was doing. Mark uh, here, he's, he's got a, a, an error, a mistake in what he wrote because he thought this was a quotation from Isaiah, and it's not from Isaiah, it's from Malachi, so therefore your Bible must be wrong, don't trust it anymore, is the nature of the argument of the skeptic. 
But we're going to see that, first of all, he does wind up in Isaiah. And we see, uh, when we look at other literature of this time, that it was very common when you were citing multiple sources that you didn't have to list them all in order. You didn't have to list each one. It was common to list the most famous one. And what prophet is more famous than Isaiah? And if you're going to conclude your statement with a quote from Isaiah, the fact that you threw in some Exodus and threw in some Malachi in there was not a problem. You would refer to this as a quotation from Isaiah. And so the skeptic who wants to poke a hole in this and say that, no, this is problematic, um, he is just wrong in that. And we'll see that actually Mark has other things in mind for why he re uh, referenced this to Isaiah. But he starts off, if you see there in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, but then he quotes from Malachi. You should have a footnote in your Bible, and that footnote should take you back to Malachi, again, chapter 3 this time. So go back to Malachi, chapter 3, where we read, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He's, God is preparing his people for when Christ is going to come on the scene, when God is going to visit them. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant reference to Christ again, in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's such great news. The people, nation of Israel, during the time of Malachi, they were suffering and they were struggling and they had issues that they were dealing with. And God is telling them, don't you worry, there will come a time when I will come on the scene. When the Lord will visit you and He will come to the temple well, that's great news, isn't it? That's wonderful news. We, we like that news, and, and the people of his day would have loved that news as well until they kept reading, and they saw these words in verse 2 of Malachi chapter 3, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. There's more to this message. It's not just that the Lord is going to come and everything is going to be wonderful. The Lord is going to come and ultimately everything will be wonderful. But he's talking to the nation of Judea and he's telling them that when he comes, he's got some cleaning to do. He will be like a refiner's fire. He will be like like Fuller's soap, not the soft, gentle soap that we like that, that's gentle on your skin. It's the kind of soap that you would use to get the grimiest of stains out of your clothes. It's abrasive. It's aggressive. It's for the purpose of cleaning. And what God is saying here to the people in Malachi's day is the Lord will come. The Lord is going to visit. And when He does, He's also going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with your sin. And the people of God have always had their sins that they've had to deal with. They've, they've uh, been uh, more or less hard-hearted at different times and, 
and things like that. And certainly the people in Malachi's day had their own struggles and their own sins. And what Malachi is saying, what the Lord is saying through Malachi is the Lord will show up. And when he visits, it will be wonderful, but it will come with a price because your sin will be dealt with. And that's the message that John comes preaching. The message will be difficult to hear because it's not only good and glorious. The Lord is in our midst. That's wonderful. It's also a revelation of our own sinfulness and the people needed to be made aware of that. And so Mark starts here by quoting from Malachi in this reference to I will send my messenger before your face. He will, he will prepare your way. That the preparation is, uh, involves a revelation of our own sin and the need that we have to deal with that sin. And likewise, there's a second reference here. The second reference is, uh, is not a quotation, but it's a, a passing reference. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 23, what had happened to the nation of Israel was that they had been brought out of Egypt, they had been brought through the Red Sea, and they had been brought to Mount Sinai. And chapter 23 is the conclusion of the giving of the book of the law, the, the book of the covenant. It's been delivered. And at the conclusion of that, go back to Exodus chapter 23, at the conclusion of that, the Lord says, I'm going to send an angel, a messenger. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20, Behold, I send an angel, that's the word messenger, before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, right here, he just says this and passes on. But the Lord is saying, a messenger is going to go with you. A messenger, an angel, is going to go before you. Why? That sounds like wonderful news. We would love to have a, an angel go with us when we, when we go and travel. But there's more going on here. Turn to Exodus 33. And as you turn to Exodus 33, you notice that you passed conveniently right by Exodus 32, which is the story of what? The golden calf. While Moses is on the mount meeting with God, the people are down below engaged in horrific, horrific perversions of worship, bowing down to the golden calf and all the other things that they were doing. That's what happens in 32. That's the context, and you remember what all comes from that, but look at 33, verses 2 and 3. You have an explanation of why God is going to send an angel. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The promise of the angel is not just a day of celebration, not just, hey, great, we get to have an angel, a powerful angel of God who will go with us and he'll fight our enemies and he'll probably separate the water so we can go through the Jordan. He'll give us food. He'll do all these things. The reason the angel is sent instead of God himself in his own presence unmediated is because they are a stiff-necked people. 
They are a sinful people. And so go back to Mark chapter 1. All that's wrapped up in verse 2 that, that we, don't, we don't see unless we dig into the Old Testament context. When he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, comes with it a little bit of dread. A sense that, yeah, he's going to come and that's wonderful, but then sin's going to be dealt with. And guess who has sin? You. <laughs> and me. Right? So there's a sense of, oh boy, oh boy, uh, this, is, this is real stuff. But... He concludes by looking at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, and he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So go to Isaiah chapter 40. Mark said, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and here we finally find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 40. In verse 3, and if you know where we are in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, more or less, are bad news about judgment to come. Not exclusively, there's more than that, but you could, you could break up the book of Isaiah this way, that the first 39 chapters are arranged in such a fashion, presented to us where we're hearing woe and judgment. We're hearing about God's righteousness in contrast to the sinfulness of man. We're hearing about the judgment that's going to come upon man. And most particularly, we hear about the judgment that's going to come on the nation of Israel. And they're going to be, they're going to be cast out of the land and they're going to go and serve a foreign people and all of that. But then chapter 40, how does it begin in verse 1? Comfort, comfort. And if you're reading Isaiah and you get all the way through chapter 39, you're ready for some comfort. And God's people were ready for some comfort. But look at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is meant to be comfort. When you turn the chapter from Isaiah 39 and all of the woe that you've read about and all of the threats and all of the, all of the holiness of God being offended by the sinfulness of man and the, the result of judgment that comes from that, you're ready for some comfort. And the words of comfort when he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, what do you tell them? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. It's meant to be comfort. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so, first of all, why did Mark say this is a reference to Isaiah and then quote from Malachi, make a reference to Exodus with all the sin and the threat of judgment to sin and the promises of the Lord's coming will be like fuller soap and, and, and a cleansing. Why did, he, why did he say, this is a quote from Isaiah, and then finish after having said those hard things with a quote from Isaiah? Uh, from Isaiah? Why did he do that? It's because Mark wants us to get this picture. 
He wants us to understand, and this is going to play out in the rest of the gospel. He wants us to receive the message of how glorious is the promise of this deliverer. How blessed is the coming of the Lord. That the, the, the glory and the blessing and the comfort that comes with the coming of the Lord is meant to outweigh, is meant to give context to the threats inherent in verse 2. Not that we skip over. Mark could have just quoted straight from Isaiah chapter 40 and, and, and rejoiced and, and, and praised God. But he wanted us to come away with the understanding that there is, that the revelation of Christ means also the revelation of our own sin. But it is glorious when Christ comes and that sin is dealt with. That's why he arranged things the way he did. And that's because the people of Israel needed to be prepared for Jesus. And so they must understand those two things. The guilt the danger of our own sin. You see, Jesus coming on the scene, we, we, we tend to think of Jesus, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, and, and He's my you know, buddy, or he's, we, and, 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 and all of that. And we, we forget to think about the fact that He is God Almighty who is righteous and holy. And the mere appearance, uh, presence of Christ, Him coming on the scene brings with it threat to those who will deny Him to those who will reject Him, to those who will stand against Him. And so Mark wants us to get that message, but he couches it in the terms of Isaiah so that we ponder that message and we get that message, but then we realize God intends comfort from the coming of Christ. So how do we relate those two things together? Well, we move on in our passage and we see, secondly, that Israel has to be baptized for repentance. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, verse 4, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John comes on the scene. We've been told that he is the one who's meant to prepare the way of the Lord. How does he prepare? How does he prepare the way of the Lord? By preaching and by calling the nation to repentance. That's how we're to be prepared to receive the Lord. And that's, a, that's an application for us right now that even in our day, you must realize your sinful condition before you can ever truly receive the Savior. You've got to deal with the reality, the fact of that offensiveness against God that is your own sin and the judgment that you deserve as a result of it. We've got to start there. We don't end there, praise God, but we've got to start there. And so John came on the scene and and John could have told us all manner of wonderful and comforting things about God. But he knew that in order for people to benefit from those wonderful and comfortable and comforting things about God, they must first deal with their own sin. They must first come to understand what their sin and guilt before God does for them. And so he was preaching. He was baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not popular to show up and talk about sin, is it? It's not. You, you, you want to uh, talk about God and the wonderful, blessed things of God, you will be welcomed everywhere you go, pretty much. You start talking 
specifically about offenses against God and what that means, and now you find yourself in trouble. But how, how were the people responding? Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People were coming out in droves. You can see this picture of, of people hearing this message that they've been anticipating. Since Malachi, they've been anticipating the, the coming of this messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. And, 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 and here he is, he's on the scene and he's preaching and he's baptizing people. People are going out to him to the Jordan. And it could be stated here, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, the place was emptying out going down to him. There was, they were going to him in droves. And what about John himself? Verse 6, John, with, he was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why is... Why is, that, uh, why is that included in there? Well, it's a, it's a recognizable uniform, as it were, that he's a prophet of God, and not just any old prophet of God. He's a prophet like Elijah. Remember, we read at the conclusion of Malachi, though God said he would send Elijah to prepare the way. And here's a guy dressed just like Elijah, and he's preaching like Elijah. He's wearing the uniform of the prophet of God, particularly one like Elijah. And the people were coming out in droves because they needed to be baptized for repentance. They needed to recognize their own need for repentance. That they had sin that must be dealt with. And so the way John was preparing the way was by preaching. And what was he preaching? Verse 7, he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and, and untie. So here says the mighty prophet, and Jesus will say about John that he's the greatest prophet ever born. John says, there's going to come one after me who is so mighty, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. That's what John thought of Jesus. Continuing in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A reference to the fact that John in his preaching can demonstrate the need for repentance but does not itself give eternal life. And there will come one on the scene who baptizes you not with water but with the Holy Spirit giving eternal life. And so the people needed to be baptized for repentance. But that's not the end of the story. We see that Jesus has to be baptized as well but for identification not for repentance, but to be identified with Israel. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Did you notice who was involved in this episode? You notice the persons that are here present in these couple of verses? He comes up out of the water. The heavens were being torn open. It's a reference to the, the eschaton that God is accomplishing His great purposes. And what do we see come out of heaven? The Spirit descending like a dove. The Spirit is present. And a voice comes down from heaven. Who's the voice from? The Father. 
And what does he say? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. You have all three members of the Trinity present in this one event. And there are so many things we could say about the baptism of Jesus. We need to notice, first of all, the presence of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit in what is going on here. But secondly, we need to recognize that here Jesus is not coming to be baptized by John for repentance. He doesn't have anything to repent of. He's coming to be identified, to be baptized, to be identified with the nation of Israel. Just as Israel of old had come out of Egypt by passing through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus is passing through the waters of John's baptism, not because He personally needs that, but so He can be identified with them. He's one of them. He's the leader of them. And Israel had passed through the waters in the Exodus, but then what did they do immediately after having passed through the waters? They begin to fail to obey God. They disobey at every turn in a million ways. In fact, the people of Jesus' day were in the predicament that they were in with Roman rulers over them and living with a fraction of their former glory because of their repeated failures to obey God. They were in the difficult spot that they were in because continually, again and again, they continued to disobey God. And this is not a finger pointing. We can look at them and see what, what they did. This, we do the same thing. They're just like us. And they needed someone to succeed where they had failed. They needed a new exodus, a new start. And that's what Jesus came to accomplish. And so now he's passed through the waters just like they had passed through the waters of the Red Sea. And what do you think comes next? Well, when the nation of Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, what came next was the wilderness and the many temptations they faced there. And what do we see there in verses 12 and 13? We see that Jesus has to be tempted for us. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Why 40 days? Because the people of Israel were in the wilderness, wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. He's representing, he's identifying with them, having just passed through the waters. Now he's there for 40, just like they passed through the waters, and they were there for 40. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. They were tempted by Satan again and again. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Israel of old had passed through the waters of the Red Sea, and then on the way to the Promised Land, they come to the wilderness, and again and again they face these temptations, though they encountered God in a way that, that is shocking to us. Remember what happened when they came to Mount Sinai? And you could see the smoke and the lightning, and you could hear the thunder and see the earth uh, shaking as the mountain was quaking. You could hear the trumpets of angels. What, a, what an encounter, what a... What an experience they had with God. And while they were still camped in the same spot, they make a golden calf and begin to worship it and do all manner of wickedness. And then as they travel on, they grumbled about the food and they grumbled about the water and they grumbled about the miraculous manna from heaven. Again and again they face these temptations and they give in to them. And Mark says it here very plainly, but the assumption is, and we confirm that elsewhere in Scripture, uh, that he passed these tests. He was tempted by Satan, but we see elsewhere in Scripture that he passes those tests. 
Matthew and Luke both talk about the fact that, that, uh, that Jesus believes the Bible and honors his Father. And thus, he passes those tests. So the people had failed. The people had given in to temptation. Jesus stands up to that temptation. Well, again, we point the finger at Israel, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. How often? How often have you failed God? How often at the slightest whiff of temptation are you just blown over and give in to it? This is, this is the state of man. This is the condition of fallen man. We need to realize our sin and not just point the finger here at Israel. Sometimes it's easy to do that. We need to recognize they're like us. They're just like us. We need to realize our own condition, our own sins before God. That we too, just like they, we need someone to obey in our place. Someone to represent us, just like Jesus represented the people in His baptism and in His temptation. We need someone to represent us as well. Someone who will obey in our place. And of course, in typical Mark fashion, he moves very quickly from what we saw there, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. Verse 14, we come to the application. The application for us. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So here is Jesus preaching and saying, what's Jesus' message? What is, what is He preaching? Well, he, could, he could preach it to us. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus comes on the scene not just to preach, not just to teach, and not just to do good things. When you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're talking to them about the Lord and about what He's accomplished and you're trying to help them understand, they're, they're fine with Jesus being a great teacher. He taught wonderful things, like love your neighbor. They're, they're even fine with Him doing wonderful things. Perhaps even miracles, though that's its own conversation, but surely he was a good guy. He did good, and he treated people well, and he was a blessing. They, it's not a problem to say that Jesus was a good man. It's not a problem to say that Jesus was a good teacher. But when we come to recognize that Jesus did and said what he did as a one representing others, because we do not have those things. It's a different story. We talk about the fact that Jesus came on the scene and was obedient to God, withstood all of those temptations. One of the reasons He did that was for you, because you don't, because you haven't. And the person you're sharing the gospel with certainly hasn't. They need to come to realize the, the, the nature of their own disobedience to God and the consequences of it. What happens when you offend a holy God who is almighty? We need, we need to recognize that. And the person you're sharing with needs to recognize that. That person needs to recognize the, 
the fact that we could never and would never obey enough, follow after God closely enough, and do all the things uh, that would be Uh, that would add up to us being considered righteous. We wouldn't do it. And thus, in, in the presence of a righteous and holy God, we would be judged. We would come up short. But the message of the gospel, what what Jesus preaches and what Mark preaches and what the Bible preaches is that we must have someone who will obey in our place because we have not and will not, and that person is Jesus. And that's why we celebrate what we celebrate at Christmas, not just the birth of a baby, of course, but because of all that he would preach, all that he would say, and all that he would do, and the fact that he did that for us. In his life of obedience, he's doing that as a substitute for us, doing it in our place because we've not, and then going to the cross. That he would go to the cross and bear that penalty, not because it was a a tragic story with a sad ending, Not because uh, people turned on him and and all of those things, but ultimately because you, because of your sin, and the person you're sharing with because of their sin, and I, because of my sin, deserve to be there in the place bearing the wrath of God. But God sent Jesus. The righteous one, the one who has withstood the temptations where Israel is not and where we've not, the one who always obeyed where Israel didn't and we don't, And then he goes to that place of punishment for you, for me, for all who will place their faith in him. And so the call for us, the call for us is the same as it is for the initial recipients of this and those who saw John preach and those who saw Jesus preach. The call is to recognize our sin and recognize that Christ has paid for it. When we, when we trust in Him, when we look to Him and, and instead of looking to ourselves and we see Him as the better Son of God, not like Israel who's failed, the better Son of God, the one who's perfect, we look to Him and we look to His accomplishment, we have peace with God. And we can say with Mark here and with Isaiah in chapter 40, we can rejoice and find these words comforting, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. That's, that's a comforting message in Isaiah. And so for us today, I want, to, I want to be aware, I want to consider the, the nature of our sin, just like Mark does here in quoting from those two passages from Malachi and, and from Exodus, being aware of our sin, but I want that, the reality of that, I, I think most, most of us are aware of our sin. Maybe the person you're sharing with is not aware of their sin. Most of us, I think, are aware of our sin. But Mark wants to make sure, the Spirit of God writing through Mark wants to make sure that the the underlying, the conclusion we come away with, the context in which we understand our sin is the context of the mercy of God. That yes, we recognize our sin and we find a way for it to be dealt with in Christ Himself. And He doesn't leave us some small percentage for us to deal with on our own. He doesn't leave us with a, with a task to do to complete the job. Here, I, I did the bulk of it. You just, just take it on home. The context that Mark wants us to come away with is the comfort that is found in Christ. Be 
because of what He's done. He not only reveals our sin in His preaching and His teaching and His own life, He deals with it in His life and in His death. When God raised Him from the dead, He demonstrated that 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 payment was acceptable to God, pleasing to Him, that the sin placed upon Jesus and punished in Him is all gone. It's all been dealt with. And so we come to this time of year where we celebrate the birth of Christ. And we talk about the baby and we talk about the miracle of the incarnation and we talk about all manner of things surrounding it. And Mark wants us to get to the end of the purpose. He wants us to see why. And he wants us to have the comfort that God preached to his people in Isaiah chapter 40 that we would have that comfort of the presence of the Lord. And so as we celebrate this season, as we read the nativity stories and we read about the birth of Christ and we ponder all of those things, we must remember. And please remember the end, the goal, the purpose, and what it is that Christ has accomplished so that you will have the comfort that is meant from all of that. The very presence of God mediated to us in Christ Himself, and so that you and I have peace with Him because of what He's done. And so we look at Mark chapter 1, it doesn't even talk about the, uh, the birth of Christ, and really focuses in large part on what John here has done, but the message is intended to be comfort for us because we get to be in God's presence because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude uh, our time this morning in this brief uh, look at Mark chapter 1, I pray that you would take these words of this chapter and that we've looked at in the Old Testament as well and that we would be comforted by the presence of Christ, that, that our sin, though it is, it is real, that we who are in Christ have had that sin dealt with, that the penalty has been paid that that sin is not the defining characteristic of us. Jesus is. And may we be comforted. And may we comfort one another with these words. And Father, for those who don't yet know Christ, who, who are afraid perhaps even to think about the idea of a holy God because they recognize their own guilt, I pray that they would look to Jesus our Savior. And they would find in Him the one who has obeyed where they've not, the one who has died so that they wouldn't have to, and the one whom you raised from the dead so that we might have newness of life. May this Christmas be the best Christmas ever. We pray that you would draw many to yourself in our community and in our families and in our lives. We pray that you would stir up in us such a heart of joy and comfort stemming from what we have in Christ that would spill over into lives of worship and rejoicing and obedience. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and we pray in His name. Amen. There's going to be a family down front to pray with you. If you want to bring your request to them, I would encourage you to do that. They will uh, they love to pray with you. I would encourage you also about 
uh, church this evening at 6 o'clock, uh, just across the way there in the fellowship hall. Uh, God bless you all, and an early Merry Christmas to you.